I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In 2018, the federal government opened up bidding. A contract worth up to $5 million to build a new immigration holding center in Laval, just north of Montreal. The architecture firm LeMay won part of that bid. Soon after, the firm says they became the target of a series of attacks. Windows at one of their properties were smashed. Another was graffitied. Crickets were released into their head offices. A group calling themselves the Anti-Construction Crew took credit for that one. And, notably, one of the firm's partners and lead architects had his car set on fire in front of his house in the middle of the night. There were also peaceful protests involving neither insects nor arson. And those activists pressured the firm to pull out of the contract, to not contribute to the detainment of immigrants. The activists were against detention, period. But they had a real problem with a certain quality that this immigration holding center was going to have. Family units. This building was being specifically designed with detained children in mind complete with a playground, surrounded by a six-foot fence. I'm A.C. Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. The argument over what to do with detained children is a big one. One camp says people need to be detained and we don't want to separate parents from their kids, so building family units is the humane thing to do. The other camp says there is no humane way to detain children. Dr. Rachel Cronick is one of the few outsiders who's seen into the heart of this battle. For journalists and researchers, holding centers are notoriously difficult to get into. But a few years ago, Rachel did. The Canada Border Services Agency, the CBSA, granted her access to the Laval Immigration Holding Center, That's the precursor to the one that is currently being built and protested. Rachel is a psychiatrist, and she was part of a team of researchers, along with Janet Cleveland and Cecile Rousseau, who were granted access to study the effects of detainment on children. To be clear, she was not brought in to act as a psychiatrist to treat detained children, but to observe, research, and get out. When we set out to tell this story... It was B.C., before COVID-19. But I think this is an interesting time to tell it. In the spread of COVID-19, all of us are experiencing restricted movement, borders closing, walls closing in, and being separated from the people we love. And that's what Rachel was studying, the effects of the most severe version of those conditions on children. And what she found, it changed her. 
CBC Montreal producer Craig Dessen will take it from here. There's a big prison to your left. Across the street, there's another huge prison. And then I see the detention center in front of me, surrounded by high barbed wire fences with those razor spirals on the top. It's a March day when Rachel first arrives at the Immigration Holding Center, just north of Montreal. To get there, she takes a bus, which brings her to a desolate area that fits the description of the middle of nowhere. And you go in through a sort of shabby entranceway, and it brings me to the family area. Two or three bedrooms on either side. I see a couch, and I can see there's a television sort of mounted on the wall, and there's a table that families can sit at. There's a sort of empty sound. There's certainly the sounds of kids crying, and often just the sound, the tedious sound of the television that's on almost all the time. Rachel, Janet, and Cecile begin the research. Rachel's primary focus is families and children, who she interviews in the family area usually with a guard right beside her. Well, I can tell you about the first interview I did. Yeah, I'll never forget it. They had two girls. The eldest was about 10, and the youngest was three. And they were really darling, lovely, bright girls, active and inventive I did an interview with the 10-year-old that first day. She finally got winter gear to play outside in the yard. So I went with them and we played in the yard. They had been separated from their father, who was detained in the men's section, so she only got to see him once a day. And she saw her father across the barbed wire fence and she went running, waving to greet him, Papa, Papa, in her, in her mother tongue. And the guard yelled at her and said, No, you cannot greet anyone. Families were often separated, with fathers put in the men's section of the detention center. When I ask the CBSA about this, they say they try and allow families to spend as much time together as feasibly possible. When I ask someone who works for an NGO inside the detention center how this actually happens, she told me families are usually allowed some contact, but how much time is inconsistent. So I remember watching her father's face collapse. I remember seeing the look on her face. And she slowly backed away from the fence and sort of slumped along into the, the wintry, snowy yard. It was crushing. As a researcher, you're supposed to keep your distance. Document, interview, observe, do not interfere. And the detention center had granted her access for that purpose alone. Her intention was that her study would witness moments like this and understand how they are shaping children's experiences and their health. But as Rachel talked to families, people desperately worried about their future, 
with no idea how long they might be detained for, and if they will in the end be deported, she realized, if you're seeing young children locked up, it can be hard to just keep your distance. I knew it wasn't going to be easy speaking with these families, but I figured... Look, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a child psychiatrist. My job is to speak with families about difficult things and difficult circumstances. I didn't imagine how distressing it was going to be for us to see families in captivity with such limited means to help them. The Laval Migrant Holding Center is run by the Canada Border Service Agency. The guards go through special training to work there. And she noticed some of the guards were affected too. When I would interview mothers, the guards sometimes would say to me, I'm very concerned about this mother. I'm worried she's very, very depressed. So watching these families, even in this role of guard, they developed a sense of empathy and a feeling of wanting to protect these people. The center mostly holds asylum seekers while they wait to verify their documents, or people detained awaiting deportation. It's a bit like a prison in that every aspect of the detainee's life is controlled by the guards. It's unlike a prison in that nobody being detained has been charged with a crime. But if the Canadian government wants to keep track of people they're not sure belong in Canada... From this perspective, the Migrant Detention Centre is how you make that happen. I reached out to the CBSA for an interview to ask about why they detain children, and they sent me an emailed response. They said they only detain children as a last resort because their parents are being detained and they want to keep families together. Back at the holding centre in Laval, the interviews progressed, and Rachel got to know the detainees. The children and the parents would sometimes be frightened, and Rachel would see families in distress. So she did what felt natural to her. She tried to help. She would bring kids things like a box of crayons or phone cards for the parents to compensate them for taking part in their project. But then she would give them more than they were supposed to get, like giving a parent a $20 phone card when it was supposed to be a $10 one. But even when she wanted to help, there wasn't always a way. One day, while she was conducting her interviews, she noticed a pregnant woman who wasn't doing very well. Rachel had gone to med school, and she was concerned. The woman's lips were crusty and dry. I was reassured by the fact that there is a nurse at the detention center, and there is a family physician who comes in to visit. But she seemed so unwell in that moment and so uncomfortable, very much wanting to be able to lie down. Normally she could talk to the detainees in English or French, but this woman spoke neither. I wanted so desperately to to communicate with her to find out what she was feeling and what was going on with her health. The woman was from Afghanistan and spoke Dari. The guards didn't have an interpreter available to help them. There was a guard who knew Dari, but guards aren't allowed to translate. He was following the rules. I remember how frustrated I felt and helpless. There was nothing I could do to convince the guard to to speak with her. But Rachel had to keep her emotions to herself. 
because if she did speak out, there was always the risk her access could be revoked. But towing that line was getting harder. I always felt very clear that my duty first and foremost was to protect children from harm. That's my duty as a physician. But it became challenging when protecting children from harm would itself threaten the research project. As time went on, the guards became more aware of Rachel and her colleagues. Rachel said they seemed more anxious around the research team. They'd ask some questions like, what will your research show? I remember someone telling me, just so you know, everything you did, we wrote it down. When you went outside, we wrote it down. When you came in, we wrote it down. And while it was an expression of, look, we're very diligent and careful, it also felt like there were messages being sent of, yes, we're anxious about what you might be doing and how you might portray things, and also, we're keeping an eye on you. <laughs> but Rachel continued to come in, do her interviews, and leave. She had to keep her head down. And then that girl from the first interview, the bright 10-year-old who had gone outside and seen her dad on the other side of the barbed wire fence, something happened to her. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So I got to know this girl, and she went from hopeful and talkative and engaged to hopeless, listless, withdrawn. She stopped eating, and she became, she transformed from a very normal child to a child who looked severely psychiatrically ill. I discussed her with my research team, and we felt, given our role as clinicians, that it was our ethical responsibility to do what needed to be done to protect her. The detention center was also concerned about what was happening to the girl. So they approached Rachel and asked for her help as a psychiatrist. So she did a psychiatric assessment of the girl, and she gave it to the detention center doctor. It involves taking a very careful history of understanding the symptoms the child is experiencing and understanding the context for those symptoms. And it seemed very clear to us that the precipitating factor in this case was the very toxic stress of immigration detention. And so our recommendations were that this child needs to be protected from that toxic stress. This child needs to be released with her family from immigration detention. So there it was, 
Their assessment showed what was causing the child's mental breakdown was the fact that she was in detention to begin with. Then the question for Rachel and the team became, now that they had this information, what else should they do with it? We were sitting in the CLSC, our community health clinic, and the researchers were sitting around a desk together and discussing what do we do about this girl who was getting so sick in detention. So we asked the family, would you like this report to be with your lawyer so that this medical information can be used in your detention review? Detainees can have a lawyer helping them argue for the release. So giving this report to the lawyer could become a key piece of evidence for getting the girl out of detention faster. And the family said yes. So we provided the report to the lawyer, which might not seem like a very radical act, but the reaction we got from the detention center suggested otherwise. (laughs) I received a letter from a manager uh, asking me to please explain myself and actually asking, um, whose side are you on? And I remember having a phone conversation where I tried to explain that as a physician, I am not taking a side, but rather examining what is in the best interests of the child. But the the manager and the detention center staff were clearly very alarmed by us having taken this step of providing our report to the lawyer and viewed it as a transgression of, of the research boundaries. But Rachel knew it was the right thing to do. Her report just might help the girl. As the detention hearing loomed, all she could do was sit and wait to see if the report would affect the outcome. And while she waited, the detention center started to get to her. I began to have a feeling of sort of... I would almost say paranoia, where I felt like I had not policed myself properly and felt like I actually had done something quite wrong and quite transgressive. I had thoughts like, what if my phone conversations are being listened to? Which they were most certainly not being listened to. And it wasn't that I had a break with reality and was, was delusional, but I feel like something of the, um, it's, it's a paranoid space, these detention centers that incite in feeling in people, this feeling of vigilance and paranoia. And it was almost like it was contagious and that even though I wasn't fully impacted by this detention center like detainees are, that I could feel something of that feeling of precarity and paranoia because I, I, I was being watched in a certain way. And then it was hearing day. On that day, she went herself to see what would happen. The immigration hearing that I sat in on happened in a very institutional and polished-looking windowless room. 
it functions very much like a courtroom where there is counsel on both sides. Sometimes there's counsel, sometimes detainees represent themselves, in fact. And we sort of sat at the back observing and listening. And I could see from where I was sitting in the audience the various papers being held by the two different councils. And I saw in the hands of CBSA, CBSA's council, I should say, the copy of my report with that had clearly been read carefully with highlights and marginalia. But during the hearing, neither the lawyer for the girl or the CBSA brought up the psychiatric assessment. I was enraged because here we had documented evidence of the harms of this detention and the best interests of this child were not even mentioned. After the girl's lawyer and the CBSA made their case, the decision maker from the Immigration and Refugee Review Board made the call. They decided not to release the family. First, I remember the child was weeping as the decision was being read. And I remember watching the decision maker and noticing that he or she couldn't even bring themselves to look up at the child at any any point. They had to um, distance themselves from the suffering that this child was experiencing. And I also remember during this decision, one of the things that decision makers are obligated to do is keep take into consideration the best interests of the child. And this decision maker in their decision said aloud, I am taking into consideration the best interests of the child. And then proceeded with the paragraph and said nothing about the child while the child was was weeping, hearing this decision being read. So despite our best efforts, actually, to advocate for this child, they utterly failed. (laughs) Long after the hearing, Rachel heard the family was released. But not because of the advocacy we had done, and not because of the well-being of the child herself. Just her family had made it through the system. After six months in the detention center, Rachel finishes up her interviews. The study on children in detention came out in 2015, and it was published in the American Journal of Orthopsychiatry. A key finding in their paper was that detention shatters a child's sense of safety and emotional well-being. The report, along with another from the International Human Rights Program at the University of Toronto, had a huge impact. The research was picked up by the media, and the team met with politicians in Ottawa. Then, in 2017, Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale told the CBSA they could only detain children as a last resort, and the number of youth in detention dropped. So we've definitely seen improvements that the government can be commended on, but there's still a long way to go. In my view, any child in detention is one too many. 
when the research was formally finished, I think my main feeling is there's so much more to understand and to study. More research. But there was something else that was left unfinished. Something lingering from Rachel's time in the detention center. I still felt like some of the knowledge we had generated from this research wasn't captured. It's now been 10 years since Rachel finished interviewing detainees inside the detention center. And in that time, she thought a lot about what she actually felt while doing her research. Especially those moments when she had to keep her emotions inside. Those feelings of wanting to help, but not really being able to. Like when she met the pregnant woman. Those feelings stuck with Rachel. They haunted her. And then she realized that those feelings are where she could look to understand what it means to detain asylum seekers. Those feelings had value. There was a whole side process that was happening that was very significant. And that was sadness and grief in what we were witnessing. I think we had to take very seriously. It was pointing to the sadness and grief that was being lived by these families. Her hunch was that she wasn't alone in what she was feeling inside the detention center. So as a researcher, those emotions could be a kind of data, which means those feelings could help her understand the nature of relationships between the detainees, the guards, and the people who administer the refugee system, because there was a good chance that at times what she felt was what everyone else was feeling. So she and the two other researchers wrote another paper called Do You Want to Help or Go to War? Ethical Challenges of Critical Research in Immigration Detention in Canada. And it was published in 2018. This paper looked at the emotional experiences as a researcher and the ethical problems those feelings raised. So our emotions, I think you know, revealed some of something about the institution itself, that our feelings of precarity and vulnerability um, spoke to the nature of this total institution. Also, our feelings of wanting to protect and our feelings of helplessness, I think, pointed to a very real phenomenon, that children were in harm's way and that we were working in a system that um, stripped everyone of their agency to be able to help and to intervene. Rachel and her research partner Janet Cleveland are still researching migrant detention. Right now, their focus is on when the CBSA separates families. Rachel can't say what happened to the girl she met in detention for privacy reasons except that she's no longer a detainee. She still thinks about her, though, running across the detention center yard towards her father all those years ago. Stories like that, which show the emotions that exist inside the detention center, aren't really part of our immigration policy discussion. Because you have to get past a barbed wire fence to hear them.
That doc was produced by Craig Dessen from CBC Montreal. It was edited by Julia Poggle. Craig would like to dedicate that documentary to his father, Jim Dessen, who is currently at the Ottawa Palliative Care Center. This week, some people who are detained at the Laval Immigration Holding Center are on hunger strike. They're protesting the conditions during the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, right now, we are here on the detention center, Laval, um, and uh, we decided to go on a hunger strike. We see how the, the virus is spreading here and a lot of people get contaminated. The first day, um, I talked to them in the morning. We, we all came down. It was breakfast time. Um, and I, they called for breakfast. Nobody moved. And then I, I, I stand up and I ask the security to call the manager and all the immigration because we have a message. And uh, when I told them that we're going on hunger strike, at that time it was everybody was was uh, agreed to do it. Craig Dessen is now following that story, according to a statement sent to us from the CBSA. The holding center currently has no children. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Kent Hoffman, and me. Althea Manassin and Tahiat Mahboub are our digital producers. Our senior producer is Julia Poggle. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.